Welcome back. This is Focus. I'm Ron Sisko, and today we're talking about the happiness threshold. I think it was in 2017 that I read an article talking about the threshold at which people could find happiness. Sort of. It was it was a little foggy. It was one of those like uh, hyperbole things where you write uh, an article about happiness and you talk about a, a money figure. And right around the $75,000 threshold, an individual would find that they were not going to get happier with more money, but decreasing the salary from there on. Uh, so anybody making less than that would obviously be less happy as, as uh, you go further down the salary bend. To put that into perspective, $78,281 was considered upper class as of 2016. Sorry, I'm looking at my, my notes here. Uh, in order to be considered middle class, you would have need to have needed to have made at least $26,093, which is insulting. $26,093 is just around $13 an hour. That's generally how we do that calculation. And at $13 an hour, tell me how mobile you are, how much you can complete with your life. For most of us, that $78,000 figure is pretty unattainable as well. That, that rounds out to be, what, $39 an hour? Uh, and I know that when you get to those numbers, you start looking at things from a salary perspective and not directly as an hourly pay, but most of us, especially those of us without college degrees or those of us who have had college degrees granted to them in the last 10 years, probably are still working for an hourly wage. One of the reasons that I brought this up is because the, that threshold becomes seemingly less and less attainable as time goes on. And, and the threshold itself seems to be a moving goalpost. They said that in order to attain happiness and satisfaction for the rest of your life, it would be closer to $95,000 a year for the rest of your life in order to be comfortable. And when they say comfortable, I just assume what that means is that you're no longer afraid that medical bills will drive you into poverty. That since you are already upper class, and this is an actual interesting uh, fact, when you already make the jump to upper class, it's easier to move around in that bracket than it is to jump from middle to upper class. One of the things that we as an American populace never really seem to pay attention to is that we have a class war that's based almost solely on income. One of the interesting things about that class war is we have so much in common with the people of the lower, middle, and upper class just based on the kinds of things that we have. We have huge televisions. We drink Starbucks. We play video games. We own laptops. Those are things that used to be reserved for people of the upper class, or at least the upper middle class, are now available to all people because they're so affordable. To put that, um, I guess I should stop saying to put that in perspective, as an anecdote, when I was a child, uh, I think it was in second grade, maybe third, no, it was definitely in second grade, I purchased a copy of Super Mario Brothers 3 with my allowance money. And it wasn't a lot of allowance money, but I was I was lucky to have been able to receive allowance money in the neighborhood we lived in. Super Mario Brothers 3 cost me $80 at Toys R Us. Looking back on that, that was kind of a ripoff, but that was that was what they were charging for video game, like premium video game cartridges back in the day. $80 for Super Mario Brothers 3. And today, we consider $60 for a video game expensive. Now, if you're not into games, that maybe doesn't mean much. But if you are, and most of my friends are, 
especially those of us who, who spend time on Twitch, $60 isn't a lot of money because the cost of games has, according to inflation, gone down significantly. And because of that, a lot of companies go out of their way to try to find ways to monetize the, the, the software that they're already putting out there. And in a lot of those games, having, having that, that software, those little add-ons, paying $30 for the, the season pass, uh, paying $25 for all of the upgrades, makes a difference in performance that, that creates another kind of micro-class war. So think about it. What are the big difference makers in terms of income? What are the things that people can't have? Because one of the things that I keep hearing about when, uh, when people are criticizing poor people, um, or at least lower class people, I guess, is, is the politically correct term, but we're talking about the poor, aren't we, is that if they would stop eating uh, avocado toast or drinking Starbucks, that they could make a significant change in their life. And they're, they're not wrong that it is kind of a waste of money to eat, to drink at Starbucks, um, $5 a day, but you know, that's just replaced smoking because smoking used to be the, the vice of choice for people who were in the lower classes. I used to smoke when I was, uh, when I was a younger pup, I used to spend, um, when I first started smoking, it was two seventy a pack. And when I quit smoking, it was up to four eighty a pack. And I said, I need to save the $5 a day that I'm paying on, in cigarettes so that I can put that towards something else. I quit smoking. And guess what? It didn't make a change in my life. It didn't, it didn't mean that I could uh, live in a nicer apartment. It didn't mean that I, I was no longer immune to health care costs. When, you, when, you, when you're poor, and I was, I was working a job where my health insurance paid for nearly nothing. I always had to make a decision balancing my, my, my health at the time versus how much it might cost me um, versus how much it would cost me. And those, those, those were two different kind of realms of thinking based on what the problem is. So let's say for a, fact, uh, for a second that I'm sick and I don't know what the problem is. I have a fever and I feel unsteady. I could wait and see if it gets better for free. Or I could go to the hospital and incur the charge because my health insurance would help a little bit. I'd pay the copay and then 30% or 40% of the doctor's fees. Even though you thought, I have insurance. Why am I still paying all this other stuff? It's because my insurance wasn't good enough. Because I wasn't making enough money. Because my company decided I wasn't worth enough to pay for that. I'm lucky enough to have built a way out of that situation. And I, I, I dare say that I'm spoiled at this point. But there are still millions of us who still suffer that day to day, barely making ends meet, having medical bills destroy our lives, having the cost of life's unexpected consequences change everything. A couple of years ago, my wife had uh, had leased a Honda Fit just because we needed a car for a couple of years and we weren't intending on keeping it. Leasing definitely made more sense, especially for the deal we ended up negotiating. But during that time, some construction was going on in Minneapolis. And as she hit the transition from the pavement that was being worked on to the pavement that had not been worked on yet, one of her tires popped, and she was on the hook for that cost. 
At the time, the tire had less than 7,000 miles on it. And we had no intention on putting more than 30,000 miles in that car. But here we are, now presented with a $200 expense that at the time, we couldn't really afford. I look at all these insulting articles about $250,000 a year people who say they can't make ends meet because they have to pay for their car loans, they have to pay for their mortgage, they have to pay to have their children in dance class, they have to pay for eating out three times a week, they have to pay for unexpected life expenses, and suddenly $250,000 a year isn't enough. And those are the same people who have the nerve to tell people, your Starbucks is what's keeping you poor. There's a constant cycle of, of, um, of, of obnoxious disavowment of victimhood that happens. People who work for next to nothing are, are constantly derided as not trying hard enough. And I remember when I was making $13 an hour, and I definitely didn't feel like I was middle, middle class, but I was doing everything I could to change that. I was doing everything I could to find promotions. I was constantly searching for jobs, applying for jobs I had no business applying for. Because if I could just get the interview, then maybe I had a chance to, to, to find my way up that ladder. It's not the same way for everybody. I know that um, one of the things that I am grateful for is my ability to take rejection in stride. I get rejected constantly. And I'm so comfortable with that 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 doesn't bother me at all. But I know for a lot of people, that rejection, that heartbreak, that thought that just maybe this could save them, and then having a rejection email or, or letter or, or no response at all could be heartbreaking, could, could leave you in a, a fit of despair. I understand that feeling. I, I, I've been to that feeling, to, to, to the worst parts of uh, financial distraught where I felt everything was hopeless. It's hard enough. It's hard enough to to look at apartments and, and think that maybe just once you could find an apartment that wasn't in a bad neighborhood or that you wouldn't have to consider moving to a worse neighborhood in order to be able to, to, to save a little bit of money or to pay for your medication. I have ADD and I don't buy the medication because every time I turn around they were they were taking another one of my medications off the list. And honestly, I don't, I don't want to be taking um, the, the medications that were pre prescribed to me because despite the fact that they say they're not addictive, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to disagree. I think, I think uh, they, they may well be chemically addictive. But every time, I t even my asthma, I have, I have asthma. I have exercise-related asthma, and I take albuterol, and every time I turned around, albuterol or some sort of substitute has been taken off, and it got to the point where I was just paying full price for each of these inhalers. I remember during the, uh, the last recession we had gone through, the Great Recession, if, if anybody was, was there for that, um, welcome to the club. I lost my job. I was unemployed for two years. It was hell. And I remember during that recession, I read an article about a woman who was fired from her job. She worked for Winnebago, I think, and her job was to apply decals to, to uh, the sides of the, the, the um, RVs. 
I can't remember exactly how much she was making, but I think it was upwards around fifty-five or sixty thousand dollars a year. And the reason she was still making that much money was because she had been working for Winnebago for twenty-five or thirty years, and she started at a very low pay. And because of the union, she was able to get a pay raise at a very regular pace. I'm sure that woman was very happy to have those pay raises as time went on. I bet that those pay raises helped her find financial footing and and made it comfortable for her 20 years. And it's so ironic to me that after she was let go, she blamed the union because the reason she was let go is that they would replace her with someone much less expensive who didn't have the same amount of experience. And really, she was putting decals on an RV But because the new person didn't have years and years and years of pay raises, they could start them off at near minimum wage. Rather than looking at it as a failure of capitalism or a failure of the economy, she looked at, and and without being thankful for the last 25 years of a a reasonable uh, salary, she was angry at the union for her losing her job, which just was incredible for me. Word up to Winnebago. And, and there no be no union involved, and I'm sure they would disagree, but, but science proves this. She would have been making minimum wage all of her life. I look at the same thing in terms of McDonald's. Our economy had gotten to the point where working for McDonald's now became a thing that people should do in order to maintain some form of, of lifestyle. And by that I mean being able to eat, because that was pretty much all you were going to get. Uh, no offense to McDonald's. No, actually, terrible offense to McDonald's. Their their pay was is terrible. It's terrible. And uh, if you know anything about McDonald's and you know anything about the amount of margins that they used to make back in the day, the pay definitely should have been better. They wouldn't have had the turnover, and they probably would have had a more loyal customer and employee base had they been paying more reasonable wages. When I was uh, 14 years old, I used to work at Burger King. And when I turned 15, I, I moved over to McDonald's because at 14... I had a manager, and I'm going to tell this story one day, not today, who was so terrible that she forced me to switch fast food franchises, which if that, if that blows your mind, it should. Uh, I was making exactly $5.15 per hour because that's how much you would pay a cashier at McDonald's, $5.15 per hour. The constant excuse that people make for why we don't pay people who work at McDonald's better is that they don't want the price of the food driven up and that McDonald's jobs like McDonald's cashiering were were designed for teenagers, which definitely was not the case. It's just an excuse we're making in order to justify not paying people. Your Big Mac could cost a dollar more. And what I, when I was working at McDonald's, it was three eighteen with tax. It was uh, for a number one the Big Mac meal, two ninety nine plus tax, three eighteen in uh, Egan, Minnesota. And I sold a lot of Big Macs and a lot of quarter pounders with cheese, four twenty five, three ninety nine plus tax, four twenty five. And I I remember. I remember. I remember looking at the margins the cost of the french fries, the cost of the burgers, the cost of everything. And actually, most of the cost was franchise fees. And I wasn't upset to be making $5.15 at 15 years old. I was 15 years old. Who the hell was going to pay me for anything? But what was just disturbing to me was that there were so many people who worked there who were grown adults making just a dollar more. And to put that in perspective, when I was 18 years old, I was making... I don't know, $11 an hour, 
at Best Buy. And when I was 19 years old, I was making like 11.25, maybe. Slave wages, poverty wages, not quite that 13 to middle class. But I was still putting in my 40 hours a week. Actually, not even just putting in my 40 hours a week, fighting for my 40 hours a week. Because as a full-timer in a retail store, not only are you beholden to slave wages, you fight for the pleasure of a full work week to get a full paycheck. I worked at Best Buy uh, in a store for four and a half years. Four and a half years, and I, I took one vacation. I called in sick like once, maybe twice. At the end of that, I had weeks and weeks of vacation and sick pay built up. And in order to placate me, in order to keep me on the staff for just a little bit longer, my manager was willing to pay out the vacation time that I was owed and half of my sick time. Four and a half years of not being appreciated by a company. Four and a half years of a company saying, you're not worth the bottom of middle, middle class for all of the things you've done for us, for all of the overnights you've worked, for all of the nights you've sacrificed into overtime because someone else didn't show up for work. Four and a half years of that, that I didn't take vacations or sick days. And it wasn't until I threatened to leave that someone would allow me to take my vacation and my sick days. Never did it think, never did they think that, that just maybe if they treated me better and paid me better, I'd have stuck around and worked harder. Some ar- armchair economist is, is definitely going to say, you're wrong, you, you can't pay people living wages because, and just listen to what you're saying here. You can't pe- pay people living wages because it drives up the cost of everything else. And then everybody's poor. I know, and I know this ended up turning into a rant about economics and how unfair everything is and liberal yada yada and... Just just listen for a second. No matter how poor you think people are, no matter how inequitable you think it is that people should be able to pay, be paid more money, be paid a living wage, $15 an hour or whatever it is that's insulting that's considered a living wage, they're so far away from the happiness threshold. It's one of the promises that we made to the people in this country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They've been locked out of that third thing. And why? So we can worship the people at the top, the 1%, the 1% that we continue to talk about that, that owns 50% of the money, the 1% that, that owns multiple houses, that doesn't have to worry about where they go when it's cold out. They don't have to worry about clothing or food or their, their car breaking down. The 1% who continues on completely oblivious to the real struggles of people when the price of cereal goes up 30, 30 cents or worse the amount of cereal in the package gets cut in by a quarter in order to keep the price the same, to, to bolster more profit margins, margins to, to put more money in the same people's pockets. They don't eat that crap. Carbs and sugar, completely devoid of any sort of nutrition. They aren't sold on the idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. They're not, they're not privy to the realities that the rest of us face. And as time goes on, the idea of being middle class is, is cut further and further from the idea of the reality. Um, 
uh, economically speaking, middle class starts at the 26,000 and ends at 70. And the reality is, when you feel it, middle class starts at 50. So how much is that, that, that differential, that delta, how much pain does that cause? How many of those people get no relief from their work? How many of those people work two or three jobs to keep food on the table, to pay for piano lessons, to, to put their child through college because they think that that's the only shot that they have? When the sad reality is, and I'm sure you know so many people like this, that you can come out of college with $90,000 in debt and a job that doesn't pay any better. I started this whole podcast up with the idea of, of creating some sort of empathy. The guidelines being that empathy would drive most of the, the, the conversation pieces or the topics or the approach. Because as long as you can feel for another person, you still have the ability to feel. And this one is near to, near to my heart because I grew up in a bad neighborhood and I came up with not a lot and both of my parents struggled to make something happen. And even then... It's really not enough. You still struggle from day to day. You still look at your bills and and wonder if you're going to be able to make it because we keep thinking, if we can fake it until we make it, that, that everything will turn out fine. And that's a lie. It's a lie, and I don't know who created it, but they are definitely evil. The truth is, every time we make something available to a person who can't afford it, that person pays the price. There are people in the United States who aren't allowed to have checking accounts just because of where they were born. There are people in the United States who pay their credit cards with other credit cards because they needed to put brakes on their car to go to work. There are people in the United States who work two full-time jobs and a part-time job in order to make a rent payment. An exorbitant, abusive rent payment. I remember looking for a place in a nicer neighborhood and they required me to make three times what my rent was was going to be. And I needed to prove that I made three times more. But I could sp- spend the same amount of rent in the inner city with nothing but an agreement that if I didn't pay it, they would take my stuff. And so for me, it's, it's very easy to get upset at the very idea that people who don't have simply didn't want enough. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. I believe it was the philosopher Kanye West who once said, having money ain't everything. Not having it is. Focus is a Patreon-supported podcast, which seems ironic considering the topic today was mostly about money. And the fact that people are locked out of that American dream, or at least the pursuit of the American dream, and all they can do is, is try to survive. Just, my heart breaks when I think of every person who has lost their opportunity at, at any sort of economic movement because they, they have cancer. That we're just so, oh, it's terrible. It's just, just terrible. If you'd like to discuss this, and I'm, I'm sure somebody would like to discuss this and tell me what an idiot I am about economics and, and fairness and all that, 
uh, while defending how people at the top should be able to make as much money as they want at your expense. Um, you can find me at focusbycisco.com or ron at focusbycisco.com. If you'd like to send me a direct email or, you know, respond in podcast or YouTube form, that's fine. Um, I'm here. I'd love to hear it. I'll, I'll, I'll keep an open ear about it. I've heard all of the things before, but nothing gets past that heartbreak. I want to thank our Patreon supporters, Anastasia Beaverhausen, Vigilante, The White Prince, and Enrique Ramos. Thank you so much for the continued support. It makes a huge difference. It really does. And giving me a venue to, to talk about something like this is actually kind of therapeutic. So thank you. If you decide to share this with somebody, I hope you do it because it meant something to you and not because they need to hear it. Although, damn it, somebody needs to hear that one, right? Just, I, I cannot believe the lack of empathy on the subject of money. I'll see you when the plot requires it, which will be next week. But until next time, be excellent to each other. <laughs>